Death from disease and thirst will skyrocket across the planet. And at this point, maybe someone will be thinking, okay, maybe the ocean's fouled. Maybe the river's bad, but I've got my well up on top of my mountain in Vermont and we'll be okay. No, even the well waters are foul. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 16 of our study of the Revelation. In this prophetic book, we've already seen that a time is coming when a number of judgments from God will take place on earth. These judgments will be in groups. We've already looked at the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, And in our study entitled, The Coming Bowls of Wrath, we are now looking at the bowl judgments. Let's find out more as Dr. Brogy begins reading from verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth. Underscore that in your thinking. Because we're going to see that in the bold judgments, it affects the entire planet. There has never, ever, ever been a time in human history, and certainly not before 70 AD, where there have been judgments and plagues that have come upon the entire planet. And yet when Jesus addresses the seven churches, he warns the church at Philadelphia that because of their faithfulness, they are going to be removed from that time frame because they're true believers, a time frame of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. Never, ever, ever has happened in 6,000 years of human history, even with the plagues of the Middle Ages. Never, ever has there been plagues that have come upon the whole planet, and yet that's the description here. Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now, if earth doesn't mean earth, then no one can tell what it means, and God may well not have written it. And yet in verse 2, he clarifies very specifically. Look at verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image." It's a sore. It's the Greek word elkos. Some of your translations render it in abscess. Um, the Net Bible says a painful sore. The Christian Standard Version says a severely painful sore. The Latin Vulgate that Jerome gave us in the fourth century, since that was the language of the scholar, gives us our word ulcer. Uh, the word, though, is the identical word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Most of you know that's called the Septuagint. There was a time when the Jews lost their ability to speak Hebrew, and the lingua franca of the Jewish race was Greek, so they read the Greek Old Testament. And interestingly, in the Greek Old Testament, the very sores that God laid on the magicians who challenged Moses, it's this identical word. It is a word that describes a malignant, inflamed sore, a sore that can't be healed. And so the word malignant modifies it, a loathsome and malignant sore 
on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped the image. Now, the plain reading of the Revelation is that across the planet, people from every tribe and tongue and nation are saved, and people from every tribe and tongue and nation give allegiance to the Antichrist. And since his followers across the planet, a one-world government, as we'll see in the next two chapters, and a one-world religion, so it is that this plague comes across the entire planet. And this, again, is an indication that God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Maybe there's a few who have not yet believed in Jesus, but neither have they taken the mark of the beast. And in these final judgments, they will see as clear as God could make it, a foretaste of what is going to come in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. In other words, as they see even these plagues of sores that come only on the followers of the Antichrist, In essence, God is saying, look at what happens to the Antichrist followers. They're plagued with sores, and even this man who has all kinds of miracles coming from his hand, he can't heal them. Now, the Gospels are very clear that in the record of the Lord Jesus, he never failed to heal anyone that he wanted to heal. And it will be shown by the Antichrist's attempts to take the place of Christ, that he is a fake, he is a fraud, he is a phony, he is a false physician. And this, by the way, may signal many of the people of the world, even those who have taken the mark of the beast, that he is a fake, a fraud, and a phony. Why? Because before we're done with this chapter, even many of the followers of the Antichrist are going to amass an army in the battle or the campaign of Armageddon to come against him. But again, this is supernatural in nature. Now, when we come to verse 10, possibly next time, the fifth bowl of darkness is aimed at the throne of the beast. Just like these sores come only on the followers of the Antichrist, that plague, uh, the fifth bowl, will only come on the city of the throne of the beast. Just kind of like the plagues in Egypt. There was a place called the land of Goshen. And in the land of Goshen, they had light. Everywhere else in Egypt, it was utter darkness. Now, some possibly, because they've taken a, a, a safe refuge in the wilderness, they will not be affected by these bowls. But the clear implication of Scripture is that these bold judgments come only on the lost people at this time. They are the people who are first and foremost impacted by these sores. Now, uh, that brings us to the second bold judgment. Beyond that, there's the second bowl of the contaminated seas. The second bowl of the contaminated seas. Now, with this first sore, God on the outside is really putting on people's bodies a physical representation of what's going on on the inside. They get these malignant sores that really shows in many ways what their hearts are like. But now we come to the contaminated seas, and it has a different purpose. Look at verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and everything in the sea died. Remember, Jesus described these 21 judgments like a woman in labor. If you were here in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, we studied the trumpet judgments, and in the second trumpet, only a third of the seas were affected. 
Now with this cataclysm, it is worldwide. When the second bowl is poured out, all the oceans of the world are fouled like the blood of a corpse. The NASB, if you're using that, is most precise to the Greek New Testament. It reads that the sea became like the blood of a dead man. Now, please follow. It is not using a simile here. It's not saying that the seas became like blood. It says the sea became blood, and the simile is to that of a dead man. A dead man's blood is foul, it's congealing, it's coagulating, and God is saying that the seawaters will match the blood of a dead man. It's going to be absolutely awful. And when this happens, the Bible is clear that all the sea life will die. We just witnessed that hurricane that hit our friends in North Carolina harder than it hit us. And some of the ocean waters came up into some of those towns. And when the ocean waters went out, tens of thousands of fish were left all over the streets in some places. The stench was absolutely horrendous. Well, think about this. All the sea life, all across the oceans will be dead. The stench will be unbelievable. You won't even be able to find a a brief respite to go for a walk on the beach. Everything will be corrupted. And when you think of the fact that 70% of the earth is covered with seawater, you can begin to see the magnitude of this. Think about the millions of people who will begin to have no food to eat. We've already seen in some of the judgments that preceded this how the food supply was radically diminished by the judgments that came upon the land. Now all the food in the oceans is instantly gone. Imagine the impact that that will have. And imagine the impact we'll even have on the rainwater, because understand that most rainwater comes from the evaporation from the seas around us, and ultimately it brings rain to the earth. So every environmentalist will be having a heart attack at this point. One by one, God is tearing down every stronghold that people have leaned on. Their health is destroyed. Their oceans are destroyed. The first bowl is that of canker sores. The second is that of contaminated seas. You still with me? All right, let's look at the third bowl, the third bowl of the corrupted streams, the third bowl of corrupted streams. We are told now in verse four, then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Once again, the third bowl is poured out. It speaks of the intensity. It's not dripped out. It's, it's poured out. And this is full-blown, unlike in the earlier trumpet that came upon fresh water, only affecting one-third of the fresh waters. All of the fresh water supplies are now contaminated, and they too are like blood. It won't be long Before all the bottled water, all the stored water are off the supermarket shelves, there's nothing to drink. All of the rivers, all of the springs, all the reservoirs turn to blood. Now, most of you know from sixth grade science that 60% of your body is water. And that's why a human can only go about seven or eight days without any liquid at all before dying. So no doubt... Death from disease and thirst will skyrocket across the planet. And at this point, maybe someone will be thinking, okay, maybe the ocean's fouled. Maybe the river's bad. 
but I've got my well up on top of my mountain in Vermont and we'll be okay. No, even the well waters are foul. It's a global judgment. It's the worst nightmare the world could ever think of. People will be dying of thirst across the planet. And what do most people do? They are so blind. They are so callous. God keeps bringing these judgments. Do they repent? They blaspheme God Almighty to his face. They recognize that these are judgments from heaven because there are no atheists. There never has been. Don't give a testimony, well, I was an atheist, and I say, well, if there's a God, or I was an agnostic, if there was a God, show me. That is just pride. It's anti-Scripture. You've not even read your Bible clearly. Don't give a testimony like that. Biblically speaking, there's never been an atheist, never been an agnostic, and at this time in human history, the world blasphemes the God of heaven to whom they know exists and who is bringing the source of this. Now, when Jesus comes back, what kind of planet will he come back to? If all the waters are polluted and all these judgments, how will he be able to set up his kingdom? Because he's going to do two things. Number one, when he comes back, one will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken, one will be left. Um, some will be left here on the earth. The other will be taken away in judgment. And so you read in the kingdom parables of Matthew chapter 13. The good fish are separated from the bad fish. The wheat, the true believers, are separated from the tear. The sheep are separated from the goats who go away in judgment. So God will remove all of the unbelievers across the planet. And again, had he not stopped and intervened, there wouldn't be any Jews left to enter the kingdom, a kingdom that God had promised in the Old Testament. But there will be Gentiles and there will be Jews whom we will see who will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies, and we will be here in our resurrected bodies. We'll see that a little bit later. But not only will he remove all the unbelievers from the earth, he's going to replenish the earth. Remember, Zechariah chapter 14 teaches when the Messiah comes, he's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to split it in two. Listen to Zechariah chapter 14. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, and the other half towards the western sea. In fact, the waters will be so alive and so replenishing. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel, speaking of the same time when Messiah comes back to reign, he says this, the waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. By the way, has that ever happened in human history? Never, ever, 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 ever. How are the prophecies of the first coming fulfilled? Literally. You say, you've got to write off so much scripture and you have to allegorize it or spiritualize it or you say it no longer applies to embrace replacement theology and to say that God is done with the Jewish people. He's not done. And he's not done with their land either. Some of you have been with me to the Dead Sea and you know they're just like these big blocks of salt that wash up to the edge of the sea. There's zero life in the Dead Sea. Now, they came out a month or two ago on, on Fox News, and they said, oh, they found life in the Dead Sea. No, they did not. If you went to the Dead Sea in 1989, the first time I saw it, it came right up to the road. Now it's about a mile away from the road. 
and between the road and where you can actually put your feet and get wet in the Dead Sea, there's a lot of sinkholes that have developed. And then the dirt off of the mountains across the way have blown into some of those sinkholes, and some rainwater has filled up a little bit, and they have found some maybe minute micro microorganisms. But in the Dead Sea itself, there is absolutely nothing that lives in it. But God says here, the waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. So the Lord Jesus, through the splitting of this mountain and what's called the living water that flows out of Jerusalem, will replenish all of the water sources on the earth. In fact, the whole planet will be replenished. Isaiah says, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. But at this point in the history of man, the earth is devastated people will wonder, where is the God of compassion and mercy? How could he ever do such a thing? And God anticipates that kind of question and what follows. The truth of the matter is that God has been showing mercy over and over again as we've read chapter after chapter. God has been warning the people of this world to repent. But to help us to understand that what God is doing at this point is absolutely holy and righteous, he brings two witnesses. Let everything be confirmed by the mouth of two witnesses. Notice the first angel in verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. So at this point, he describes the angel of the waters who gives us, in essence, an explanation and a defense that God's judgment is indeed just. By the way, this angel has jurisdiction over the waters. And we will see over and over and over again in the Revelation, even in the subsequent chapters, that angels do much more than what they do for you and I. The Scripture describes them in Hebrews 1 as ministering servants sent out to render service or help to those of us who have salvation. But angels do far more than that. They have all kinds of responsibilities. In fact, the principal responsibilities, at least what God recorded in Scripture for us, is angels are used as God's instruments to carry out His judgment. And so here is this angel, and he says, God is not unjust in what He's doing. Just the opposite is true. Righteous are you who are and who were. Oh, holy one, no sin in you because you judge these things. And to further elaborate on God's righteousness, he says now in verse 6, for they, those the followers of the Antichrist who took his mark, they poured out the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. How terrifying those words are to human ears. But think about what's happened in these seven years. People, through the witness of the 144,000 Jews who are saved, through God's two witnesses, and the people that they in turn all lead to Christ, they have been sharing the gospel across the planet. And the prophecy that Jesus made in Matthew 24 is that this gospel during this seven-year period will go out to the ends of the world, and then the end will come. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will have been saved. And as they're saved, they are raped, they are kidnapped, they are executed. 
Most of them are actually beheaded, the 20th chapter will tell us. They have martyred God's people. They have taken their innocent blood. And now God is going to give them blood like they've never seen. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, these days will be cut short. God will end this. And we're told here that millions of saints, not to mention pastors here called prophets who have come to faith during this time, who have been preaching the word of God, their blood will be taken. Now, again, hold in your minds a biblical definition of the word saint. Every time you see the word saint in the New Testament, you need to ask what kind of saint is it? Because there are three categories of saints in the word of God. There's what we call Old Testament saints, as this next diagram shows you. Remember in Psalm 34, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. He's speaking of old covenant believers at that point. Fear the Lord, O you his saints. Then there are what we call church saints. Those are all the people who, once the new covenant was enacted and fulfilled there at Calvary and then brought about through Pentecost 50 days later after the resurrection, you have new covenant saints. And so, for instance, you have Saul who is persecuting in Acts chapter 9, the saints in Jerusalem. In that same chapter, you have the apostle Peter who goes and he visits the saints who live at a place called Lydda. Um, when you think of the Corinthians, they are one of the most immature churches in all of the New Testament. So when you think of sainthood, don't think of it the way our Catholic friends do, that only a select group of people in the history of the church have been given the title saint because of some exemplary life they've lived and at least one miracle that they've done. In God's word, every born-again child of God, even the Corinthians, who had so much messed up sin in their lives. They are called in the introduction to that first letter, saints by calling. But the church saints are gone at this point. And so you never see the church mentioned between chapter four and verse, and chapter four and verse one through the end of chapter 18. And so you have a third kind of saints, and we call them tribulation saints. And these are people who come to believe in Jesus during the time of the tribulation. And the word hagaios, hagaioi in the plural, they are set apart people. They are set apart as holy. God has imputed righteousness to them. They have not earned it. They have been given it by God Almighty, by His grace and their faith in Him. So again, pulling these two verses together, righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They've shed the blood of God's people. And now through God's poetic justice, He gives them blood to drink. That's all they can drink. If they want to try to wet that dry throat, all they have is blood to drink. You know, when Jesus came, the first miracle he did is he turned the water into wine, and the purpose of that miracle was to draw people to himself. 
But when God does this miracle, he turns the water into blood to remind people of his righteous judgment that is being expressed on them. He pours it out upon them because they poured out the blood of God's saints. One by one, God is removing every prop, every comfort, everything that mankind leans upon. And now a second witness steps up to the plate. Look now at verse 7. And I heard the altar saying, meaning another angel at the altar. Some of you, uh, you, your, your Bible translation adds the word another or someone. It's implied in the Greek, uh, but this is another angel. I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God is the Almighty, and He is true, and He is righteous. Everything that he is doing is an expression of how holy and perfect he is. You say, well, what does this have to do with me today? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, I learned from this chapter of Scripture, from these opening verses, that God will someday make every wrong right because he is just. A day is coming when God will make every wrong right for he is just. Now, remember, the first readers of this book were in 95 AD when John wrote it, and they were the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And if you recall the series I did, I did a sermon on every, on every church, did seven sermons just on those two chapters. One of the characteristics all the way through is that God's people in that century were suffering. They were being persecuted. And of course, those seven letters, along with every letter in the New Testament, the, the letter to the church at Rome or Galatia or Corinth, they're written to every born-again believer, not just for those people. They're written for people not just in the first century, but people in the 21st century. And God uses those churches because all of the churches in the New Testament, all of those local assemblies really model all the challenges and difficulties and blessings that God's people have experienced since the inception of the church on Pentecost. But you might be asking, well, what would be the personal benefit of this futuristic section of the book of Revelation, if you lived all the way back in the first century, 95 AD, when you first read this book? Well, the exact same benefit for someone living in the 21st century. Now, remember, these people never lived to begin to even see what God pens here in chapters 6 through 18. And if you think about it for a moment, in 70 AD, as Jesus prophesied, the Romans came down. It's what Daniel also wrote about, the prince of the who is to come, and he destroyed Jerusalem, decimated it. And there was a few Jews who were left in the city, and they submitted to Roman rule, but they got bold about 132, and they had a second revolution called the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And Rome put it down in 135 AD. And from that point on, every Jew, with the exception of those few who are kept as slaves, mostly women, they were all removed from the land of Israel. And for 2,000 years, the Jewish people had been scattered across the planet. So if you're reading this in 95 AD, most of the Jews were already gone. There was just 
a small amount, comparatively speaking, that were still living in Israel. Yet when you read the Revelation, it presupposes that the Jewish people have been gathered from across the planet. We are living in the day when God has made the Jews a nation and where Jerusalem is the capital. And according to the prophet Zechariah, it is Jerusalem that is front and center and the city of contention, as we'll see tomorrow. And God has gathered millions of Jews and is bringing them back to Israel. To listen again to today's study entitled, The Coming Bulls of Wrath, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV43. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the coming bulls of wrath. Join us then as we search the scriptures.